me begin this morning, and I'm gonna share, uh, and I'm gonna try to make it uh, brief. Obviously, we are uh, coming up on um, another service about to start, and people driving in to be baptized, and I, I don't uh, apologize for uh, the service going late, but I am aware of it, and I need you to know that. I know parking is difficult, and lining up, and service times overlap, and I, and I get that. If you would just add your faith to ours, we're praying and we're believing that at the right time, God would open up a miracle facility for us. We need it, we need it. I don't need it to feel better about my platform. I don't need it so the lights or the screens are bigger. We, we just simply need it to host the amount of people that are hearing about what God is doing and showing up. And so if the Lord would bring it to your mind over the next number of days and weeks, I, I would just ask you as, as a friend, as a co-laborer, would you just pray, God, would you open up the right facility for pursuit? And uh, I just really believe God will do it because at the end of the day, he's building his church, which means it's his problem, not mine. And uh, I'm gonna let him handle it because he's better at that than me. Let me begin this morning. In an ancient town called Shiloh, in the nation of Israel, before the temple was ever constructed by a man named King Solomon, there stood a tabernacle which stood for 369 years. And it functioned as the central gathering place for God's people to worship. Now there was a family who lived in Shiloh who feared God, but it did not make life any easier for them. The most notable person in that family was an old woman named Hannah who desperately wanted to have a baby, but the Bible says she was barren. <laughs> and after many years of believing for her miracle and not yet seeing it, Hannah found herself in a last desperate attempt, going down to the tabernacle to pray. And she committed in her heart that she would not leave that tabernacle until God gave her an answer she could live with. Hannah is praying so intently. She is so stirred in her emotion. She is so desperate for a breakthrough that it captures the attention of the priest who oversaw the tabernacle, a man named Eli. He doesn't know what to do with her because he hasn't ever seen passion like this. He hasn't ever seen desire like this. He's used to people coming into the tabernacle, doing their religious duties, standing up, sitting down, clapping once or twice, offering their sacrifice and going home. But Hannah was different. Hannah was moved in her spirit. Hannah was convinced that God could not deny the broken and the contrite and a bruised reed. He will not break. Hannah imagined herself with a child, although she was barren. And she said, I'm not leaving this place until God gives me an answer that I can live with because I'd rather die than go another day without the miracle that he's promised. <laughs> and she's so desperate, Eli accuses her of being drunk. 
The Bible says she is praying, making movements with her mouth, but no words are coming out. And sometimes God will take you through valleys that are so deep that the only thing that you can offer him is a silent prayer. And it didn't make sense to Eli because he had no context because he had never seen this type of passion before. And I find that with religious people when they peer into what God is doing at pursuit. They don't understand why somebody would run forward and get baptized in a tank when they didn't prepare for it. They don't understand why people jump up and down and worship and cry and get shook at the altar and give their lives to Jesus and respond the way that they are doing. They are so used to the pre-programmed religious services that when the passion and the desire of God's people overtakes them, they have no context. So Eli accuses her. He says, you're drunk, go home. She says, Eli, I'm not drunk. I'm desperate. I'm moved. I'm I'm just asking God that he would revoke my shame. You don't know what it's like to see all my friends have kids and I'm still believing for mine. You don't know what it's like for everybody else to have breakthrough in my sphere of influence. But what about me? Eli, I've got no recourse. I've got no planned medical intervention. If God doesn't show up, I'm sunk and I'm not leaving until the God of Israel turns his attention towards the request of my life. Give me a son. See, this is a dark time for the nation of Israel. The priesthood is corrupt. The Philistines are attacking. The people are without any significant spiritual and political guidance. And when it seems, when it seems like the experiment of the Jewish nation might collapse right in front of them, God opens Hannah's womb and a baby boy is born. And his name was Samuel. And that name Samuel means this, watch. God has heard. Friend, if you get one thing out of this sermon today, get this. You can operate in full confidence today that whether or not you have seen the miracle delivered on your doorstep, whether or not you have seen that prodigal come back home, whether or not you have seen that marriage fully restored, whether or not that healing has completely taken place, you have a God who has heard. Not one of your prayers has been wasted. Not one of your tears has been wasted. Not one of the earnest and anxious desires in your heart that comes out through the framework of prayer, petition, and supplication has been ignored by the God in heaven. For in fact, the Bible says he stores up our prayers like they were bowls of incense and they continually come before him and the fragrance of those prayers captures the attention of the Almighty and at the right time and in the right season and in the right way, not only will God hear, but God will respond and he will do exceedingly abundantly more than you have ever asked, thought or desired. You gotta operate with great confidence today. I might not see it now, but I have a God who hears. I might not realize it in fullness in this moment, but I've got a God who hears. He is not 
not a God made by human hands. He is not a God of stone or a God of iron. He is the God of heaven. And in him, there is no shadow of turning. And if God hears, he will not delay. And by his mighty right outstretched arm, he will deliver exactly as he has promised. God has heard your prayers. And if God hears, God will respond. And she named Samuel as a prophetic reminder. Every time I see this boy, it's a reminder. God has heard. Every time I see baptism services like we have today, it's a reminder. God has heard my prayers for revival. Every time I see a family get in this tank, every time I see a young man get saved at this altar, every time I see somebody get healed, every time I see somebody out under the power of God, every time I see drug addiction broken and suicidal thoughts broken and depression and anxiety and stress broken, it is a reminder, God has heard my prayers. And you gotta know today, I got a God who hears. And in 1 Samuel 3, the story picks up because Hannah tells Eli, if God will give me a boy, I'll give him back to God. And he can be raised in the house of God and he can be raised in the presence of God. And if God will trust me with the desire of my heart, I will in turn trust him with the treasure of my heart. I will give back to God that which he has given to me. And so the scriptures record that after Samuel is weaned, she gives him to Eli to be raised in the presence of God. And in 1 Samuel 3 and 1, the Bible says this, now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord. Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. But there's a problem. And the problem is this, the word of the Lord was rare. And what it caused was no widespread revelation or vision, simply meaning this, because the word of God was rare, visions ceased to happen for the people. Now let me show you the significance of what's happening in 1 Samuel 3. In Deuteronomy 10, the tribe of Levi ministered to the Lord with sacrifice. In 1 Chronicles 6, the people ministered to the Lord in song. In Mark 15, Mary Magdalene ministered to the Lord in gratitude. In Luke 4, Peter's mother-in-law ministered to the Lord in worship. In Acts 13, the church in Antioch ministered to the Lord in prayer. And may I submit something to you today. Maybe we have it backwards. Maybe the church doesn't exist to minister to me, but instead I exist to minister to him. Maybe the church is not the place that caters to every single one of my whims. Make sure to never step on my toes, never ruffles any feathers, never expects anything of me beyond occasional attendance. Maybe, just maybe, it is true what the Bible says. The church is the gathering place of God's saints who join together with the express purpose of ministering to Him. You might not be in ministry, but if you belong to Christ, you are a minister. And the chief object of your ministry is not a platform, it's not a stage, it's not a pulpit, it's not a personality, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. That word minister, it means to serve. It means to give your attention to, to wait upon like a waiter in a restaurant. 
many years ago, I was on my way home from the office and it was laid out and all of the traditional restaurants were closed, which means the only thing that was open was the drive-throughs. And so against my better judgment, I found myself in a jack-in-the-box drive-through at about 11 p.m. at night. Now to jack-in-the-box credit, it's the only place today you can get gas for under three bucks a gallon and I got filled up, I'll tell you that much. Now, probably like many of you, you don't normally carry cash in your wallet, you just carry credit, but for whatever reason, that day I had a crisp $10 bill. The meal came to about $8.50, and so I pulled around to the window after I ordered my meal, and the gal behind the window gave me my meal. In exchange, I gave her the $10 bill, and I waited ever so patiently for my change. 30 seconds went by, and she was staring at me saying nothing, and I was staring at her saying nothing. Another 30 seconds went by. She continued to stare at me saying nothing. I continued to stare at her saying nothing until finally I was courageous enough to break the awkward silence with just a humble reminder that she still owed me change. It's not because $1.50 was gonna break the bank either way. It was just odd that I clearly gave more money than what the meal required and this gal did not have the automatic response of saying, and here is your change. And so finally, I mentioned to her ever so gently, ma'am, it seems like you have forgotten my change. She said, no, I did it. I have decided today to take your change as my tip. <laughs> this is not a made up story, I promise you. I promise you this happened. Now I thought she was joking, so I started to laugh, but she was not laughing. And I was confused. Now again, I'm not trying to get in an argument with a fast food worker at 11 p.m. at night over a dollar and 50 cents, but it didn't make sense in my mind. And when it didn't make sense in my mind, I had to make sure that the person on the other side of the conversation also understood why it made no sense. Now at the end of the day, if you still wanna take my dollar 50, that's fine, but I need you to know that this makes no sense. I'm not opposed to tipping. I think it's a little out of control today, but I'm not opposed to tipping. But you don't tip at a drive-through restaurant picking up your jack-in-the-box meal. So I said to this gal, I go, ma'am, you take the $1.50, don't spend it all in one place. Clearly, you need it more than I do. But hear me, I am not opposed to tipping, but this is the reality. You have not provided me a level of service that would motivate me to respond with a reward. She was like, got it, thank you, next. And I drove off. But see friend, maybe this is our problem in the church today. We are hanging out the drive-through window, demanding a reward from a God we barely know and who we have failed to provide a bare minimum necessary level of service to. For Hebrews 11 said, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Which means when I come to church on a Sunday morning, my primary question is not, what can the pastor do for me? 
What can the altar worker do for me? What can the volunteer do for me? What can the worship team do for me? But instead, what have I come to offer the God of the universe who is far more worthy than I have ever dared to imagine? Let me wait on him like a waiter at a restaurant. Let me serve him in song. Let me serve him in generosity. Let me serve him in gratitude. And if God would see it so fit to reward me at any time during this service, I will take it as an abundant blessing. But my question is not what can the church do for me, but God, what can I give on your behalf today that would move and bless your heart? The key to Samuel's influence is that from a young age, he understood that his primary job wasn't to minister to Eli. It wasn't to minister to the people. It wasn't to minister to the congregants. It wasn't to minister to the crowds. It wasn't to minister to the people who were impressed with his prophetic gifting. His job was to minister to the Lord. And I would venture to say, if it was true back then, friend, it's true today. Our job is to minister to him. Now, when the scriptures say the word of the Lord was rare, it doesn't mean that God had a speaking problem. It meant that man had a listening problem. It meant the proclamation of God's word was so rare that people started to forget what he sounded like. Is that not the moment we are in today in the body of Christ? The word of the Lord has become a rare commodity. And watch what the scriptures say, Psalms 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalms 30, every word of God is true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jeremiah 23, is not my word like fire declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword. Now the Bible says in 1 Samuel 3 and in 1, the word of the Lord was rare, therefore vision ceased to happen. Now let me make a minor critique today. There's a million books and a thousand tips and a hundred tricks on how to jumpstart vision in your life. Vision for your business, vision for your influence, vision for your personal life, vision for your financial portfolio. And I'm here to tell you, getting vision is easier than you think because vision is the natural byproduct of hearing his word. And that's why the enemy wants to stop your ears. So in turn, he can blind your eyes. If you will hear his word and not harden your heart, there will never be a season you face where vision from heaven is rare in your life. Now watch, not once in scripture does it say pray for vision, but everywhere in scripture it says honor the word. See, I don't pray for vision because I don't need to. For when I'm in the word, I get all the vision I need. I get vision for marriage. I get vision for raising kids. I get vision for leading a church. I get vision for staying faithful. I get vision for being generous. Just as a byproduct of being anchored to the word, vision flows from my life. The problem is we're putting the cart before the horse because we are more consumeristic than we are spiritual. 
And we wanna use God as a cheap leverage to live our best life without recognizing that if I will just make the humble decision to minister to him and to be a person of his word, there will never come a time where I don't have an abundance of vision, not just flowing in me, but flowing out of me. Several years ago, I was in a board meeting with some folks who had flown in from out of state who represented a group of financial investors who were considering underwriting pursuit. I had never met them before and they had never met me before, but I promise you I was on my best behavior. I thought, boy, oh boy, God is sending the money right into our coffers. This could be a great abundance to this church. And in the meeting, we sat down, we made our introductions and pretty soon the vibe and the energy was just off. I can't explain it, but something irritated me in my soul. And they kept hitting me on these questions. Russ, show us the great grand blueprint vision for pursuit. How many campuses we gonna do? How many stadiums we gonna fill? How many media programs are we gonna launch? Tell us the vision of the next latest, greatest mega church in the Pacific Northwest. And I don't know about you, but something just kind of rose up in my heart. Like I'm grossed out by this conversation. I was like, guys, I don't know what to tell you. I feel underqualified. I'm trying my best. I make a lot of mistakes along the way. But I guess my vision, if I could fast forward 30 years, is that I'm still married. My kids still wanna talk to me. My friends still wanna hang out with me. The region's been reached by the gospel of Jesus. And whether or not anybody ever knows my name or anybody recognizes the name of our church or we ever have one more TV show or fill one more stadium for the glory of God, if I'll just stay faithful to what he has asked me to do, I will consider it a great, grand success. And they looked at me and they're like, no, 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 okay, we get all that, but like, what's the vision? And I was like, I don't know how I can be any more clear. My vision is to stay faithful to what God has called me to do and who God has called me to be. And God will be more than faithful to open doors that no man could ever shut. I'm just convinced I don't need a vision for the grandiose. I need a vision for the common. Because the reality is, a vast majority of my life will not be spent on the stage. It won't be spent on TV. It won't be spent under the bright lights. It'll be spent at home, or in the car, or with my kids, or around my friends. And if I don't have vision that sees those things as important, it'll cause me to perish. And I'm here to tell you today, friend, I know that there's things on your dream board that you want to accomplish. And when you close your eyes at night, you see all of the great grand things that God has promised you. But can I tell you, if you obsess with the grandiose, you will miss out on all of the necessary steps you need to take in order to be in a position for God to partner with the availability of your heart to do something incredible through you that only he gets credit for. That's the goal, is that we live a good life. Like David, we serve our generation and then we die. We leave a legacy for our children. And if we're forgotten, and if we're never famous, and if we never make it in the world's eyes, what I am living for is well done. 
good and faithful, not TV personality, not great preacher, not great apostolic leader, but well done, good and faithful servant. That's the vision. And the Bible says in verse two that as Eli was lying down in his place, his eyes began to grow dim, so much so he could not see. Now you've got to understand that Eli's physical condition was indicative of the spiritual condition of the nation. And the Bible actually tells us the answer to this question. Why had Eli's eyes grown dim? Why had the people become so corrupt? Why had the nation gotten so lost? Why had the tabernacle become so compromised? Oh, if we had time today, I would read you the resume of Eli's nasty, no good for nothing sons. They was taking sexual advantage of the women in the tabernacle who came to offer sacrifice to God. They were stealing money from the coffers of the tabernacle. They were taking the sacrifice that was given to God and they were using it to party with their friends. It sounds so shocking, but if you would just open your eyes, it happens in churches around our nation today. And watch, watch, watch. The Bible tells us why and how Eli got to such a place in his public ministry that it served as an anathema to the things of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 2 and 29, the Lord tells Eli, you have honored your sons more than me. Hear me, anything that you honor more than God will become a corrupting influence that will ultimately harm your life. Anything that you honor more than God. Oh, it is fine to honor good things, but if the honor of good things takes precedence over the honor of God things, it will ultimately damage your soul. See, Eli became apostatized by the sin of his own children, and he lost the courage to correct those who were closest to him. And pretty soon, the sensitivity of Eli's soul became seared by the corruption of his family to such a degree that he did not even notice the crisis of spiritual depravity that encircled the nation of Israel. Now watch, watch, watch. The Bible says something interesting, that even in the midst of Eli's corruption, the absolute wickedness of his sons, the absolute degraded condition of the tabernacle, that Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. Watch. Eli's corrupt, his sons are corrupt, the entire system is corrupt, their finances are corrupt, and their motivations are corrupt. But ultimately, no amount of man's inadequacy could stop Samuel from ministering to the Lord. Now hear me. If you let how man has failed you keep you from giving God what he deserves, then maybe your faith wasn't in God in the first place. 
See, the failings of a pastor or a priest or a leader or a speaker or a father or a mother or a worship leader do not give us a valid excuse to quit serving God or stop loving his bride. Oh, come on, pastor, I love God, but I just can't stand church. Impossible. For when you love God, you will love what he loves. And I know at times the bride is dark, but friend, she is lovely because she belongs to him. And in the midst of what Samuel sees, do you think Samuel is unaware of the depravity that he's in? The corruption of Eli's sons, the absolute embarrassment that they have become as spiritual leaders, but not once does Samuel say, well, I'm a prophet in my own right. Who needs the tabernacle? Who needs all of these folks? If they really love God, they would have just treated me better at my last church. I'm done with all this stuff. Samuel is so moved by the presence of God that even in the face of man's failings, he makes a choice. I will minister to the Lord. And if there's one message my generation needs, maybe more than anything else, it is this. The church will hurt you. The church will fail you. Because not only is it led by imperfect people, it is attended to by imperfect people. And if you hang out here at Pursuit long enough, I can promise you there's gonna be something I say, something somebody does, something somebody interacts with you in a certain way, and it's gonna grind your gears and give you a sour taste in your mouth, and you've gotta make a decision. Am I just looking for an excuse to get hurt so that I give myself a reason not to be engaged in Christian community, or will I make a decision to honor God above all else? And in doing so, make a decision to serve him. Let me end here. Let me end here. And the Bible says, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was. And while Samuel was lying down, the Lord called Samuel and he answered, here I am. I love this. While Samuel was lying down. Psalms 23, David says this. He makes me. He causes me. He forces me to lay down in green pastures. Can I tell you, God is most at work when you are most at rest. And that's why the busyness of our soul wages war against our ears hearing the voice of God. Because we filled our lives with things that look important and sound important, but they are fool's gold. They glitter on the outside, but they hold no value on the inside. And if you could just make margin in your life to be a person who is at rest, you would notice God has been speaking a lot more than I have been listening. And I love how Samuel responds when he hears that voice. He just says, here I am. It's almost like the greatest thing that you offer God in this season is the availability of your life. He doesn't say, here I am with my PhD. Here I am with my correct theology. Here I am with my complicated spiritual resume. Here I am with all the reasons that you should choose me instead of somebody else. He just says, God, I'll offer you what I've got, which is little old 12-year-old me. Here I am. God is not looking for experts. He's looking for people who would wage war against the idol of busyness and cause them to be laid down so their ears can be attuned to the voice of the Lord in the night season of their life and just simply respond, God, if you can use me, here I am. And the Bible says God speaks to Samuel when? When the lamp of the tabernacle is about to go out. Watch. One of the duties of the priests in the Old Testament 
was they had to make sure the lamp would remain burning during the night because it was against Jewish custom for there at any time to be darkness in the tabernacle. During the day, the sunlight would peer in and it was fine. But as the sun would begin to set, it was the job of the priest to trim the wick, add oil, make sure it was properly seated on the altar and in doing so lit so that there would be constant light in the house of God. Eli's eyes are growing dim. His spirit is growing seared. His soul is growing tired. His sons are an absolute nightmare. And nobody even cares that the lamp of God, which represents the presence of God, is down to its last drop of oil and it's about to go out. But I can tell you this, when a church begins to lose its fire, when a nation begins to lose its God-ordained destiny, when a people begin to go to sleep on the dreams and visions that God has planted in their heart, God never allows darkness to swallow up a generation without birthing a generation of Samuels who will hear his voice, relight the lamp and reprioritize the presence as the very center of who they are. And that's why I feel like what is happening here at Pursuit is not just important for the Northwest, it's important for the nation because it's nighttime in the nation of America and God is looking for Samuels, both men and women whose ears will be tuned to the frequency of heaven that at his word, they will respond, God, here I am. They will wake up and see that we are one drop away from the presence being removed, and they will dedicate their lives to recentering the only thing that matters at the very core of who they are. Before the lamp burned out, God spoke to Samuel. Many years ago, I made the unwise and unfortunate decision to allow myself to be talked into going camping with some friends for the weekend. And I don't know about you, but camping in the Northwest is just an exercise in pain. It's always sunny on the calendar when you set out to do it. And you go camp and God punishes you for pretending you're homeless and he sends the rain. We got to our camping spot in the North Cascades. I kid you not, it looked like the picture on the screen. It was like a FEMA camp. I said, oh heck no, I ain't doing this. You got me messed up, this is not what I signed up for. Oh, come on, it'll be fun, famous last words. Finally, the water had kind of dried up and the morning came and the sun came out and I thought maybe it's turning around. We're gonna have a good time, I guess. And the morning was fine. We cooked eggs and bacon over the fire and messed around, went fishing, had fun, goofed off, came back and started cooking lunch and having fun. This is gonna be a great night. We're gonna sit around the campfire tonight and tell stories and look at the stars and have fun. Aren't you so glad to be in the wilderness? And just about the time where I was feeling like, man, maybe I gave this a bad rap and I should have a better attitude and maybe it's gonna turn out all right. All of a sudden we see the clouds from hell coming in over the horizon. The angry clouds, not the happy clouds, the angry cloud. And they black and they fill with smoke and thunder. And I thought, here it is, here it is. <laughs> and we had lit the fire in the morning with the intention of it going all day. And 
lasting into the evening so we could cook our dinner. And it's about 4 p.m. And all of a sudden you feel those first few droplets of rain. And you're trying to convince yourself, oh, it's just a little rain. It's a mist. It's going to clear up. But it started in more and more and more. And pretty soon we find ourselves in a monsoon, typhoon, hurricane in the North Cascades. And me and my three buddies, we jump in one of the cars and we turn up the heat. We turn on the seat heaters. And I was like, I knew we shouldn't have come out here. And we're looking out at our tent and now our smoldering fire and the heavens open up and it begins to downpour. And we're sitting there and I'm so upset, I begin to laugh. Now just let me help you. If you married and you ever having an argument with your spouse and they get so upset that they start to laugh, run. Because they go stab you to death. I'm so upset, I begin to laugh. I'm like, I told you, you know, this is just, I knew it was this, and I just, I'm like, Jonah, throw me overboard. It must be me. Everywhere I go, I'm just, I knew it. And they said, Russell, we've got a plan. And we've nominated you to be the person to execute this plan. They said, we want you to open that glove box. In that glove box, you will find an apparatus that is meant to keep you dry. But they said, Russ, look at this campfire right in front of us. It's raining, it's only getting worse. And we know if we allow that fire to go out, we will never get it started again. I said, that's not my problem. They said, it is now. We have nominated you to go out and tend to that fire until the rainstorm passes so that at least we have some hope of cooking our dinner tonight. So I opened the glove box and what did I find? A little $2.99 rain poncho from the gas station that they had picked up. They said, now Russ, you gotta put this on and this is gonna protect you. <laughs> and they said, when we count to three, we're gonna unlock these doors and you're gonna jump out and you're gonna tend to that fire and if you don't do it, we're going to push you out of this car. And so I had no choice. They counted to three and I heard the lock unlock and I opened that door and I put on my hood like an idiot, like it was going to protect me in under three seconds. I'm absolutely soaked to the bone and I find myself standing by our pathetic little smoldering campfire. And I'm not like handy in the forest, you know, I, I'm not, if we don't have Wi-Fi, I'm like, who's going to Uber eat? I don't, how does this work? So I'm looking at them in the car. They're having a jolly old time. I'm looking at a pathetic little fire barely smoldering. I said, now what do you want me to do with this? And to their audacity, they're making all the hand motions in the car like, scoop the water out. You gotta get down on all fours, Russ. You gotta breathe on it, it needs oxygen. I said, it needs a resurrection. But at this point, I'm committed. And I'm irritated. And so in my little $2.99 poncho, I lean down into the muck and the mire and the mud and the flood. And God is my witness with my hands. I begin to scoop out the water. And I'm looking at this fire and I take off my glasses and I get as close as I can to the smoldering embers before my eyebrows singe off. And I just begin to, to blow. And for like 60 seconds straight, I'm blowing on this thing, looking at them like, ha ha, it's a joke, it's not working. And they're like, keep blowing, no, it's gonna work, keep blowing. And I got nothing else to do at this point, so I'm just here. All right. 
And all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it? Those coals begin to burn bright orange. And all of a sudden, smoke began to pour out on this side of the fire. And all of a sudden, I saw a lick of a flame cascade over this log and, and begin to relight some of the newspaper. And, and then I, all of a sudden, I started to get encouraged, like, it's working, it's working. And, and I'm down there scooping more stuff out and, and breathing more air in. And pretty soon, that fire went from dead to just a little more than dead to just mediocre to all of a sudden, the brightest blazing bonfire in the entire camp. Campground, and all of a sudden, other tent sites began to notice. And pretty soon, we had a little church plan happen around our bonfire because everybody else's flame had gone out. But they recognized one that they could not ignore that had grown so big, it was now leaking heat into the campsites next to us. And pretty soon, 10, 12, 15 people had gathered around, warming their hands, cooking their hot dogs because somebody's fire had not burned out. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Russell, this is what I have commissioned you to do as a represent, representative of my bride in the Pacific Northwest. And is it not true how many times God has done this to you? Lean down into the muck and the mire and the storm of your life and got ever so close that it was dangerous for him and started breathing on the embers of your heart. You were ready to give up. You were ready to get divorced. You were ready to allow that addiction, that abuse, that trauma to define you for the rest of your life. You were ready to say, screw it, I'm done with God and I'm done with church. You were ready to give up hope. You were so tired of being betrayed and backstabbed. You didn't know if you could go another day. Your hope was deferred. Your heart was sick. All you had was sorrow in the middle of the night and you didn't know if there was ever joy that was coming in the morning. And when you felt like giving up, and when you looked around and everybody else's fire was dead around you, all of a sudden the Son of Man who has the breath of God leaned close to the embers of your life and he began to breathe and all of a sudden his oxygen caused the embers and the coals to re-agitate and relight, and it didn't look significant at first, but before you knew it, that which was dead had come back alive and not only that, but a company of people had surrounded you to watch you burn. And the other day I was in worship and the Lord gave me a vision which I don't normally have. In my mind, I saw a picture of these. I didn't even know what this was called. I just saw a picture of this. I literally got home and I Googled, what did old people use on the Oregon Trail to make sure their fires didn't die? Apparently, this is called a bellows. I've never seen this before. And the Lord gave me this picture of what he is doing for the church in this season. He has taken the bellows of heaven and he's placing them next to the embers on life support, next to the lamp that is about to burn out. And he's saying, I'm not giving up on you. You were faithless, but I'm faithful. You thought your best days were behind you, but they're ahead of you. I refuse to allow this flame to burn out. I refuse to allow the enemy to have victory in your life. If you remain, I'll remain, and you'll have fruit that remains. 
back alive. And I'm here to tell you today that by God's spirit, he's grabbing the bellows of heaven and he's breathing fresh life and fresh purpose into the stuff that you've given up on, to the dreams that you thought had died, to the coals that used to have passion, but now are just a mere reflection of that which was. And God is saying, watch, all you need is my breath, like my breath that breathed into dirt to make man, like my spirit that hovered over the darkness, like my words that framed the galaxies. All you need is a little you will come back alive. The nation is dark. It feels like the lamp of so many churches is about to go out. But God is breathing on pursuit in this season that our fire would roar into a raging flame. And in doing so, people would gather around to be warmed by a God that they have almost forgotten. One who at his breath still causes us to come alive. Come on, would you stand with me as we close?